Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm John Morris. I'm Jason Hazley. As usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works, or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is the fantastic Lucy Prabble. Hello. Hello, Joel. Hello. Hello, Hello Jason. <laughs> Hello. Now, we've, we've dragged you into a building in London, which you said, I know this building. This I, is quite exciting. Yeah, I did, because um, when you gave me the address, I said, oh, yes, I know it well. And what I meant was we had the succession first season writer's room in this building, actually, very close to this room. So it was quite nice to return to it, yeah. Do you have fond memories of that? Was that fun? Oh, my God, yeah. It was so fun. It was probably, yeah, it was the first writer's room I've ever been part of, actually. Really? Yeah, I I've, I've only ever really worked on my own or with like one other person before. I think that's true. Yeah. And um, and so I was quite nervous about it. And it was, you know, but it was honestly one of the best working experiences of my life and continues to be so. But I have such fond memories of it. We had, Except for there was constant drilling. They were doing build, they were doing some building <laughs> here. And it was and, and it was re- it was weird because there was just constant drilling. And Jesse Armstrong, who runs the room, would like some days just be like, oh, God, like, can we just take a minute? Because I just can't deal with this amount of drilling. <laughs> do you think the drilling got into that series? I really do. <laughs> I really do. And then a really weird thing happened. One day we came in and there was no drilling. And I'm not kidding there was a sound of cello music and we walked out and there were four cellists in a room practicing for something what so it was like being experimented on it was like they were sort of going well what would happen if you made it unbearable for 99 percent of the time and then on one day you just gave these comedy writers like the most blissful sound ever they, what would happen were they part of the considerate cellist scheme that little <laughs> 
<laughs> that's fucking amazing. Mm. So you never know what to expect. Yeah, that, that is that is like a Milgram experiment. It is, isn't yeah. it? And it's like, just, yeah. will this give you good comedy? Will it? And yeah. We were saying this earlier on, you come from a, from a, a drama background with sort of theatre and things, but with Succession, that's one of the best fusions I've ever seen of the sensibility of a straight comedy or even a family sitcom with the modern dramatic form. And I know you're a huge comedy fan. Was it a real relief to just be able to do something which had the complete bones of comedy? Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah, I had a lot of fear about that tonal meeting um, as we were writing it. Um, and I think maybe we all did. We were, we were slightly nervous that what is it exactly? But yeah, I, I would say I've written way more tragedies than I've ever written yeah. comedies in the sense of thinking of it in a traditional uh, form when you know when you talk about that. And so I, I bring yeah quite a sensibility of putting blood on the page a bit. And I think that's <laughs> that's what my rewrites in the show kind of often do. They're often te- when we want to like yeah we want to have scenes that feel like they they have a bit more blood on the page. And and so I had to learn a lot actually about comedy writing or how comedy writers work because most of the room are traditionally more comedic writers although you know Jesse's done everything and yes. has has Jesse Armstrong you know has a, you know huge range but it's it was very interesting for me and yeah it is a very very dark comedy that fills yeah. an hour but i think there is also obviously you know a classic drama to it as well but that fusion i think does come from those two sensibilities meeting a little bit and there is some fun conflict there in the room like the joke i always make to jesse is he sort of doesn't really want anything to happen and I'm the one that wants everyone to die in every episode. So that fight is just this constant thing where, you know, he's trying to bring me down from some ridiculous sort of rock opera and I'm always trying to go like, but could, 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 could something happen as a consequence? He's like, no. Well, the standard sitcom has got stasis at its heart. The idea is that Absolutely. no one should change, that everything Absolutely. should stay the same. And, and that's something I really learned from working with comedy writers more is that, that is that drama and tragedy has a change at its heart. This idea that, yes, your, your dramatic, tragic protagonist is driven by, you know, a flaw that they will never escape. Mm. But by the end, normally, you know, the world will never be the same again as a result. And that's just not true. It's the complete opposite with comedy writing. You reset. Yeah. And I think why one of the reasons Succession might have um, resonated with quite a lot of people now is because our politics and our sort of external world feels a lot like that. It feels like there isn't a catharsis and a consequence in the way that we used to imagine there was. So comedy is a brilliant um, vehicle for that. That's a really good point. It reminds me of that that one of my favourite Simpsons quotes ever, which is, no Marge, I haven't learned a thing. Yeah. Which is literally them saying, how does an episode of Simpsons end? They all come together on the sofa, describe what's happened, and Homer has to say, don't worry, I'll be back next week exactly the same. Absolutely. The, the place where that dynamic is inevitable is comedy and the family. And I think if you sort of put them together, people repeat dynamics over and over again. Mm. Whether with, with your comedy, you know, partnerships or families, or in your familial relationships, the cliche being that when you go home for Christmas, suddenly you behave like you did you know, yeah. when you were seven. That's what traumatised. Yes. And, <laughs> and back in January going, what? <laughs> exactly. Who am I? Am I grown up? Can <laughs> I pull, put my own shoes on? Exactly. I found that completely. When I go home to my family, basically I'm just a very, very different person from them in my head. But then when I then return to my other people in the world, I'm like, oh my God, I'm exactly like my family. <laughs> That's what I've learned from that experience. And, you know, you just return to those fundamental dynamics. And so I think that overlap with something like Succession, which is about a dysfunctional family, yeah. is quite useful. Even for the titles which say you will never escape from being the kids in that Super 8 footage no matter how much you are running the world. 
as far as your dad's concerned, you're still on the back of that horse. Yeah, completely. And to each other as well, to some extent, yeah. smashing together of, of sitcom and drama that, that Succession, I think, has just masterfully done. Said it is possible, which I think is really exciting. If, I remember talking to Jesse when he and Sam did Fresh Meat, and that was the first thing they'd done which had been done with a drama budget and a drama department's involvement. I think it was someone from Continuing Drama had come in to help them with it. And I remember bumping into him on the South Bank where a lot of us were working back at the time. Where sort of Everyone was on cafe tables in the Festival Hall and National Theatre. I bumped into Sam and Jesse down there. And I said, how is it working with drama? And he said, they keep hoping we can sprinkle some comedy flavour onto the top of it in the way that you sometimes get asked to gag up a script. Like, a, a script works, all the beats of it work, and the story works, and then someone says, can you gag it up? And he said it was really hard to explain to them that that's not how we'd ever written comedy, that the comedy was inherent in the situation and the characters from the very beginning, and you couldn't just ice the cake with comedy and have a great comedy. And he said he was learning so much at the time about how much they assumed that was how you did it. And it's just great to watch him now running a room where he appears to have managed to get those two things to work together. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there, are, there are two different ends of that. The first is, as you say, in the room, you you look for the things that when you say them out loud, other people laugh, you know, yeah. or respond to in any way. Like, actually, one of our one of our favourite responses in the room is often, you know, you'll say something and Jesse will laugh and then go... Oh, that is so painful and therefore funny. Yes. You know, and, and so and so the, any sort of emotional response from someone, you tell a story about your own life as you frequently do in the room or someone else, you know, and, or, or or you come up with an idea for a character, you're looking for someone else to really, really respond, you know, laughter preferably, but it could be anything. Um, and I think that tells you, storytelling-wise, what's worth pursuing. And then at the other end of that process, the thing which some people think of as sprinkling, which but it isn't, is the alt process, which yes. I'd never been exposed to before this. In drama, you don't tend to provide alternate lines, mm. you know. And I remember saying at the time we first doing it in an incredibly like precious way, I said, I don't understand how an act, how, how the character could say something different at this point. Surely if they're that character, there's only one thing they could say. Which is a David Mamet thing, isn't it? He said said, What I don't know what a character says here, and he just picked up the script and is it Mamet? And showed it to him and said, I think he says this. Yeah. Which is a very theatrical approach to it. It really is, and it's this idea that it's inevitable that a certain character in this certain situation would only ever say this thing, and if that could be different, it's not really a character. It's a vehicle yeah. for funnies. And that was and that was <laughs> something I had to completely and utterly, well, relearn, because it's not true. There's lots of ways that people might respond, and there's lots of terms that they might use. Anyway, what that process is, is when we go and shoot a scene... What Jesse does is asks all of the writers to come up with alts, um, alternates for you know lines within a script, as I'm sure you guys know from working doing it forever. But um, and I'd never done that before, and it's just really fun. And what it means is that you go onto set with maybe five to ten different options, and if you've got a, a particularly sort of virtuosic actor who's happy to try lots and lots of things, you get different versions of those lines, and then you can kind of choose one when you come to the edit. But they're, it's particularly good for being funny, and yeah, you often. Yeah. Find yeah. more the alternate line makes it to the cut much more often than the original line, often because there's an energy behind it because the actor maybe isn't as familiar with it or it's been given to them at the last minute and so yeah. therefore it has an energy behind it. It seems to do the same thing, a thing that took me years to understand it, as a live audience does. But what that gives is an energy and a feeling 
for the performer that they're getting a reaction to their laugh, which you as a writer might have got six months ago, a year ago, yeah. but it's died on the set. Whereas if you give someone a load of alternatives, they can put that energy in and get a reaction, the crew holding in giggles, the feeling for, they'll get a feedback loop, which you don't get without an audience. And I imagine, especially with someone like Brian Cox, who's stage trained, mm. that feeling, trying to put that energy back in when, when it's just a single camera, it must be vital. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. There is a real mixture of, you know, the background I come from, which is more stage-trained or theatre-trained and more comedic actors and writers working together on this show. And I, and I do think that fusion can be felt a little bit, as you said, in the, in the nature of the show. It's trying to be tragic at the same time as it's trying to be very, very comic. Do you think or do you know that having worked on Succession has changed in any way the way you write when you're writing on your own? It definitely has, but the reasons behind that are kind of are plentiful. Like, it gave me such a greater confidence in that old cliche of sort of writing badly to begin with, giving yourself yeah. permission. Yeah. Because one of the many brilliant things about, you know, Jesse as a showrunner and the setup that he's done is he, he you see a lot of other people's scripts very early and you give your script as well to other people quite early. Yeah. So, and you sometimes work on each other's scripts. It's very democratic and it's very um, kind and supportive. But what's brilliant is... You know, I want that all the time. I want my script to go to Tony Roche, the funniest man in England, yeah, you know, in terms yeah. of, like, like write, writing jokes and, like, 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 he's just amazing. And, and so when it comes back, you're sort of like, oh, my God, that's brilliant. And, that's, and it's made me much less precious, actually, which was something that only comes from fear. Like, it only comes from the fear that everyone at one point will look at you and go, oh, you're really not very good, are you? <laughs> um, and when you open up the process like that and you make people feel safe... It's actually incredibly... Um, it ch it's changed a lot for me in terms of how open I am now with my work, with actors and other people. I, I sort of say very happily, do you know what, I haven't got that right yet. Can we just... Yeah. Let's just read through that and talk through that with actors, you know, quite late in the process. Yeah. And I go... Listen, I'm going to get this scene right, but can we can we work on it like this? Because that will help me get it right. But at the moment, I don't think it's really working. And I would have felt when I was younger, for lots of reasons probably, to do with how I present and to do with what you know whether I think I'm actually a good writer and all of that. I would have never done that. I would have wanted to get it right before I got it seen. It's, it's an amazing thing to find out that that the words can change. And the sentiment can stay the same. And what you've done as a writer is actually just still a really good job, even if someone changes it, which yes. took me years to learn. Yes, yeah, that's that's really right. And again, to not be precious about that, to not feel like there's a criticism inherent in a change um, or an alternate line that works better. Because sometimes the other thing about, you know, alts, which was a, a big lesson learned for me, was sometimes the stupid, simple stuff is by <laughs> far the best. Like, yes. you know, you, you know, the alt of someone just coming in and just saying one word in a particular way is often the one that works. When you've crafted something very clever and you're like, well, yeah. you know, this is the, you know, if you actually look at this line, it's a terribly good line. And nobody cares about terribly good lines. They want to see <laughs> yeah. the characters <laughs> yes. that they love respond surprisingly but truthfully. And it doesn't really matter what form that takes. Yeah. The thing you brought in is probably one of the best examples of something where the screenplay and the actors are all working together to just sell the story of these characters. Um, what have you brought in? Uh, today I've brought in for us to talk about the movie When Harry Met Sally.
I could almost cry. <laughs> because let's uh, let's let's start as we mean to go on. Mm. I would say that this film is perfect. Absolutely perfect. I don't think it has a single flaw anywhere in it. And I know that's Thank a you very much for coming. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I won. Um, yeah, I think it is perfect. I think it's deceptively perfect as well in that it's mm. not showing you its perfectness constantly with a yep. sort of like formal kind of contained grandeur. The only thing that's not perfect about it is uh, Billy Crystal's wig in the initial scene or hairpiece or okay, whatever. When you have found a flaw. There is yeah. a flaw, which is, is one of the worst sort of hair arrangements or hairpieces I've ever you, seen. But it does tell you very showily this is the past. I like it signalling each of the time. Listen, while we're on hair... <laughs> do they even I, get there so I quickly? To, OK, I need, to, I need to do a slight sidetrack and then come back in on hair. So, look, when I, for, in preparation for this, because I, I know the film backwards, but I watched the DVD, which has a commentary by Nora Ephron, Rob Reiner and Billy Crystal on it. And it is... This, as if this film didn't need to, you know, to prop up its perfection, it's the best commentary I've ever heard on a DVD. Is it's it? phenomenal. There's so much in it, so much depth. And one of the lovely things, which this is also a brilliant bit of writing, but Nora Ephron said to Rob Reiner about Meg Ryan's hairdos in the film, <laughs> I want her hair to get younger as she gets older. <laughs> Whoa! Isn't that brilliant? And you Time look at that first hairdo brilliant. and you go, oh, yeah, she's Farrah Fawcett in the first scene, isn't she, basically? She's a middle-aged woman mm. from the 1970s. And she's acting more grown-up than she is, as if she knows how the world works. That's so insightful. Well, it's also very insightful about what women do as they age in terms of what you actually do with your hair. Like, That's true, there's a, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a... Like many things in this film, it's a sort of insight that a man might not make about women and that, yeah. that Nora Ephron has made in that in her screenplay and also presumably in her relationship with Rob Reiner, you know, in terms of the information that she's given him in terms of how to direct it. Yes. It's a movie that I've avoided for a long time because I thought I knew what it was. Oh, really? Yeah, I only saw it in my late 20s, um, even though it came out in 1989, um, because I had assumed it was going to be like... A sort of you've got male kind of yeah, the other the, yeah. the, the other films in her writing you know CV which I associate with a much more traditional romantic comedy approach yeah. that feels slightly sweeter and well and maybe has more of a sort of traditional form of there being some sort of external um, obstacle mm. you know like, like like Tom Hanks is going to buy her little independent bookshop and but so I, I came to it really late and it was not what I expected it's more mm. like a really non problematic Woody Allen movie. Yeah, well, and that's it's, doing it's got, it. And it's that's got, not doing it justice. No, no, no. It's got a really interesting thing because I think the thing that blew me away rewatching it is that people say this about it. They say it is the ultimate rom com. It's the intelligent grown up rom com. It's the Correct. one that Correct. everyone everyone likes. What's weird about it is you think having done that, then you'd order 120 of these. And there aren't any. When I said this to my wife once. We were sitting down to watch, so what's something romantic on February the 14th or something. And I said, well, well, there's when Harry met Sally and I'm running out. And there mm. are, uh, you've watched Annie Hall, you've watched this. Yeah. You run out really quickly because it is illusory how simple this is. And one of the things that makes it incredibly difficult to do again is it is low concept. When you say, what's the, what's the USP for when Harry met Sally? Can men and women be friends mm. without having sex? Well, they, it isn't really about that. It's about, I mean, nothing. It's not about that it's at a, all. That's how they about, sold it. It's about almost nothing. What it is about, it's about a theatrical trick of saying, what if these two characters talk to each other for an hour and a half? Yeah. There is no 
uh, widower whose son's trying to get him into a new date. There is no exactly. person in a coma. There's no uh, guy who's who's a. It's not even LA story. It's not even got which is another I think very well done romantic comedy. But the high concept of that is the man gets caught on a magical realist. This is just stripped down. The closest thing is Annie Hall. Yeah, I agree. Or one of the Linklater movies. But yeah. I think mm. what before Sunrise, before Sunrise well. uh, trilogy. But I think why it's more similar to something like Annie Hall, and one of the reasons I just love it is for me the great films about love. Even leaving aside the genre of romantic comedy, the great films about love have somewhere within them an ability to have time pass yes. extensively, which is very difficult with the traditional romantic comedy mould or the Richard Linklater Before Sunset, Before Sunrise mould, mm. where everything happens within a period of time. But the great thing about Annie Hall and about When Harry Met Sally is the depth that comes from watching people change as they get older or yes. watching time pass. And well, actually it works what with that Linklater means, when you watch them as a trilogy. Exactly, yeah. It's built into the nature of the film over uh, of the three films together. And... And I think that's what gives it such depth. Yes. And what's beautiful about When Harry Met Sally, it's set in New York, you have the seasons are incredibly present. So yeah, that sense yeah, of time yeah. passing. And also they talk about age a lot. You know, Well, it opens with an elderly couple talking about looking back on their life. You're aware that the ultimate prize, the thing you want to get, is to get to that line where the old couple are saying, do you remember when we met? Mm. That's the prize that's at stake. And it opens with unrelated couples. Weirdly, very similar to the way that Sex and the City's pilot worked and they did, they ditched it. Sex and the City started with couples talking about dating right. and then cut really? to the characters as if to say, this is all of us. Mm. And what are we aiming for? We're aiming for this. And it does a thing uniquely in romance because romance is a difficult thing to do on screen. And I always get fascinated by Love Actually as a film that is just has nothing in it apart from romance. And when it's stripped down to nothing, you go, this is mentally ill. Yes. This is really <laughs> weird. This is repeated thing where people don't talk to each other, set someone up on a pedestal and then yeah. fall in love with them and then decide. It makes no sense. But it, it, that is traditional film romance. This is about change. It's not about the moment the lightning strikes. It's about where you go to after that or to get to that. It's not about a moment of... It's not Roman holiday. You don't see the woman and then chase her. No, no, no. And it's not It's not innately what you're describing as romance, which I think is has at its bones either, as you say, something quite mad, <laughs> which is you. I want yeah. you. I barely know you, but yes. I want you. We don't speak the same language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or... Or slight, actually, yeah. which is which is which you get with a lot with uh, with some romantic comedies. You know, we should, of course, we should be together. Look at the way that the film is pushing us. You know, yeah. but you're actually not aware of who these people are in a, in a proper way. I think the you, one thing you I you fell over carrying parcels, therefore we therefore, are in love. Or, or you know, the traditional one of the many things I love about When Harry Met Sally is that it genuinely feels like there isn't a protagonist between. Like it's a genuinely yeah. shared story, which usually in a romantic wow. comedy you have one perspective or another that is dominant. Mm. If it's the man, you, he sees a beautiful woman across a room surrounded by other beautiful women because it's a movie, but for some reason she's slightly more famous, Lighting. so he loves her. <laughs> yeah, she's yeah. better lit, so he goes, I love her. And if it's a woman's story, like she starts off with a guy who he, like doesn't remember anyone's names, doesn't remember her birthday, <laughs> dogs bark at him, uh, you know, he's, he, he's who she shouldn't be with. Rob and then Lowe. there's a Yeah, right, Rob Lowe. And then there's a low-status guy, but who's actually really nice. Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen, who proves himself through something and that's why she should be with him and the movie never says to you but should they 
be yeah. together. Like, it always says, no, they definitely should for those reasons, and it's very clear. Whereas this movie is a pair of people who actually I'm not entirely sure necessarily should be together, and in the original version didn't get together at the yeah. end, which I think yeah. in an Amy Hall style, which I think is really interesting. But also they're like, the friendship is what's centrally important to them. And they're both actually, for a, for a really sweet film, quite unpleasant in yeah. honest ways. Like the Billy yeah. Crystal character is not the Seth Rogen character, He's who a is a dick. lovely guy. He's a dick. Yeah. And he is actually a dick in the way that people in life are dicks. And that you go, do I want to be in a relationship with someone who is a dick in this way? Amanda never said how attractive you are. Well, maybe she doesn't think I'm attractive. I don't think it's a matter of opinion. Empirically, you are attractive. Amanda is my friend. So? So you're going with her. So? So you're coming on to me. No, I wasn't. What? And that's actually much more brave and interesting than well of course you should be with that guy if you just noticed him you yeah, know yeah. which is the approach of most romantic comedy the, the flawless guy but who happens to not have as good a job or dresses poorly whereas Billy Crystal is someone who like fucks around and yeah. you know doesn't yeah. necessarily treat women very well he's you would also, never make that movie now he's also got a very very opinionated and very strong view of his own rightness at the beginning that you go well this is a boring guy to watch because he's not going to change his mind there's a great thing where he does this a, a couple of times there's a piece of script writing a bit of performance. He'll change his mind. I thought you didn't believe men and women could be friends. When did I say that? On the ride to New York. No, 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 no. I never said that. Yes, that's right. They can be friends. Unless both of them are involved with other people, then they can. This is an amendment to the earlier rule. If the two people are in relationships, the pressure of possible involvement is lifted. And then go back to what he originally said. That doesn't work either, because what happens then is the person you're involved with can't understand why you need to be friends with the person you're just friends with. Like it means something is missing from the relationship and why do you have to go outside to get it? Then when you say, no, 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 it's not true, nothing is missing from the relationship, the person you're involved with then accuses you of being secretly attracted to the person you're just friends with. Which you probably are, I mean, come on, who the hell are we kidding? Let's face it. Which brings us back to the earlier rule before the amendment, which is men and women can't be friends. So where does it leave us? Harry? Goodbye. You go, you're awful. He's you awful. You would never be persuaded of anything. And, he, and he's got these big theories about... And he, he's pronouncing... This is a couple of years before Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus comes out. And he's got this magazine article, sureness, about this is the way the world works. I've observed it. Mm. I've had loads of sex. I've had loads of casual relationships. And this is how it is. And he's constantly preaching to her. And she's going... I've got a different point of view. And you go, well, you're never going to get on because you're not listening to each other. They talk a lot and don't really listen. And he is genuinely awful, yeah. as you say. Like, like, like he's... He does. He, ch he chucks all these opinions out. But he's also the same guy who spits out a grape seed and it hits the window because he forgot to open the car window. Yeah. Isn't he? He's that guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, he's firing blanks. When, <laughs> when you first meet them, they both do a... Oh, it's a nice bit of screenwriting. They both do a thing that makes you go, I'm interested and I don't really like them. Mm. He is selfish and self-centred in the car, in her space. She's doing him a favour and he's a bit of a prick. And she is impatient, jealous, annoyed with him. Her first couple of actions are almost wordless and she just hon honks the horn and then yeah. lies that it was an accident. Mm. You go, oh, they're both interesting. They're both allowed to be flawed straight away, which is the remarkable thing. Meg Ryan said a brilliant thing. I found an interview with her from 1989. I feel like I'm like the, the comedy babe, you know, you, but this time I get to be funny, which is you the do. difference. You do. Yeah. Now this time I'm not the item. 
I'm like <laughs> somebody who like who who actually participates in the film. Mm. I'm allowed to participate in the film, <laughs> and in that is a pretty actress's career. She's been in loads of films, and she's clearly good. But no one's let her participate in a film. Until she's now. only 24 when she makes this film. Wow. So she's already fed up. Yeah, that's. <laughs> <laughs> I who can blame her? What can I get you? I'll have a number three. I'd like the chef salad, please, with the oil and vinegar on the side, and the apple pie a la mode. Chef and apple a la mode. But I'd like the pie heated, and I don't want the ice cream on top. I want it on the side, and I'd like strawberry instead of vanilla if you have it. If not, then no ice cream, just whipped cream, but only if it's real. If it's out of a can, then nothing. Not even the pie? No, just the pie, but then not heated. Uh-huh. It's not just the fact, I think, that they're allowed to be flawed, but I think that I think the way in which they're flawed is important and interesting because it's genuinely irritating. It's mm. not a false irritation <laughs> yep. of, of sort of like if he just if she just if you just gave her a makeover or if he just got a yeah. better job, it's something more interesting than that. But also you described earlier, Joel, like the the, the film like it's that it's sort of it's simple, but it's not. Like, what is so impressive about this level of writing is the ease with which the film passes and you yeah, enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. But the depth, moment to moment, because what I think it's really about is ageing as yes. well. Like, time passing, because they are friends for years and years and years. It's 12 years? Yeah, 12 years, three months, she says, you know, <laughs> after, you know, at the end when she corrects yeah. him was how long it took for them to get married. And the moment, for example, where after they've been those people, those sort of like self righteous irritated students and then you kind of see them in the 20s and they see each other at the airport and they can't abide each other still or at least he you know has he chats to her and she can't bear him but then there's a scene in a bookshop where her and Carrie Fisher her best friend when they're a little bit older in their 30s they're in the self-helpy bit which is never really referenced you know they just happen to be you know where where there's sort of where Virginia Woolf kind of meets um, men are from Mars women are from Venus that section which is such a truthful thing of, a, of women at a certain point in your life where mm. you start <laughs> to go someone's got to help a little bit here because you know they've got a, a table in front of them that's that right with all these books a friend of mine, Will McLean, said brilliantly, if you've got more than one self-help book, you're in trouble. Because yeah. the first one should have just woken you up and then you go, oh, right, I'm going to take hold of myself. To get another one yeah. says that you're now addicted to self-help books. Yes, They've which is now the problem. Yeah. aching in alternate strategies to solve to get you out of this hole. And, and and it's such a clear, without being referenced, it's such a it marks a certain time in life, which I've really observed in my friends, both men and women in the 30s, when you're having to really make decisions about things. Mm. And Billy Crystal's there and he comes over and he's a different person. Person, and he's a different person, not totally, like he, he, he's changed because he's got divorced. He's changed yes, because yeah. he's been through something really genuinely painful and really difficult. And his performance is actually really nuanced there. It, isn't it? Isn't it? Don't you think? Yeah. Like when his, his face, you know, he's, he's the same guy, but all of his confidence has been knocked out yes. of him. How are you? Fine. How's Joe? Fine. I hear he's fine. You're not with Joe anymore? We just broke up. Oh, I'm sorry. That's too bad. What about you? I'm fine. How's married life? Not so good. I am getting a divorce. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm really sorry. Yeah, well, what are you going to do? Yeah. In a way that absolutely happens when you've had a huge trauma in your life, I think, and you go like... I was sure about a lot of things. I'm genuinely not sure about them anymore. And it can make you hard or it can make you compassionate. And it makes him more compassionate. And you can see now how he's now 
a potential. It's amazingly person. carried as well, isn't it? That because it's just it comes off. It's my favourite line in the film. Is in that scene. Someone is staring at you in personal growth. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's, as he comes over, as he walks, it's his face and his movements. You know, oh shit. He's been damaged. He's been damaged, exactly. This is a different guy. Yeah, but and he's do... learned something, and it's horrible. It's been a horrible lesson. Again, why this is, I imagine, hard to emulate. You might go, well, I've seen this formula, I'll emulate. You can only make When Harry Met Sally like this once because it turns out that the formula for this, which it seems to be on the surface, is you put a couple at the beginning, watch them go on a journey, and they'll, they'll fall together. It's all done so cleverly and so subtly that you have to be absolutely brilliant. The changes that happen to these guys aren't done through scenes. You don't see him getting divorced. The great, the title, When Harry Met Sally, that's not about one meeting. This is all the times that Harry met Sally. Mm. And what happens between yeah. those is the stuff off stage that would be in another drama or another comedy that would tell you how they got to be that guy in personal growth. Yeah. You don't see it, you read it, and you're encouraged to read it as an intelligent viewer, and so is Sally encouraged to read it as she's it. You learn about the characters as the characters learn about themselves. That's really hard because you're encouraged as a writer to put all that action in. That's absolutely right, you are. And you're also encouraged to work towards formula in a way that you're describing like the genre and, and, and the, the traditions of genre. But I would argue that when Harry met Sally, rather than being a sort of apex of that, is actually a deconstruction of it, but just right. in a way that feels still comfortable and actually really warm. The thing I love about it is most love stories and romantic comedies suggest within them that you're going to meet this person, you'll know, and then there will be some sort of obstacle that will stop you getting together yeah. and then you'll eventually get together. Montagues and, and Capulets. Yeah, and uh, yes, and, and romantic comedy in general. But these, this is really a love song to friendship, I think, more than to romantic mm. love, which I think is a really underexplored thing culturally, particularly between men and women, you know, straight men and straight women, you know, which is how much friendship, which is what Nora Ephron had with Rob Reiner, her director as well, how much that platonic friendship is what love is, actually. Yeah. Because they meet, yes, they don't like each other traditionally like a romantic comedy, but they keep just genuinely going their separate ways, choosing to completely yeah. go their separate ways until they become best friends for years and years and years in a genuinely functioning platonic relationship where they learn so much about each other and men and women. And it's actually only right at the end that you get that kind of he realises that she's the only person he wants to, you know, talk to last thing at night and, you know, when he wakes up in the morning. And it's... I'm not disparaging that because I, I love that and it seems right, but the, tr the truthfulness with which we, she deconstructs the clichés of knowing who's right for you yeah. and also sort of sex and sexuality being in there at the very beginning um, is so brilliant. My One of my favourite moments of the whole thing is at the end, obviously, he gives this speech, which, you know, when Billy Crystal kind of gives the speech at the end and says all the things that he really loves about her. I love that you get cold when it's 71 degrees out. I love that it takes you an hour and a half to order a sandwich. I love that you get a little crinkle above your nose when you're looking at me like I'm nuts. I love that after I spend a day with you, I can still smell your perfume on my clothes. And I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. And it's not because I'm lonely, and it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. When he arrives at the New Year's Eve party, when he does the romantic comedy rush, she's furious with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What? I love you. How do you expect me to respond to this? 
How about you love me too? How about I'm leaving? She doesn't, they don't fall into each other's arms. She, they don't like, it's not that the cliche, it's the opposite. And even after he gives her the speech about what he loves so much about her, she says, I hate you. Like yeah. three times straight to his face. Isn't isn't I hate you precedes the kiss? Yeah, she says I hate you, I hate you, God I hate you, Harry. And then eventually she goes, oh, I love you. You see, that is just like you, Harry. You say things like that and you make it impossible for me to hate you. And I hate you, Harry. I really hate you. But it's a really, it's such a um, astute perception of her fear of, of of this going to this very vulnerable place and and of her hating how much she loves him, which in any other movie with any other writer, everything he says would, would sort of just make everything fine and it yeah. doesn't. And the way that she responds is so emotionally accurate from, from my perspective and so funny as well. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you get to a point, the climactic point in a movie where one character says to the other, I hate you, and you know that you're reading, I love you, then that writer has done a fuck of a lot of work to get to that point. Haven't, haven't they? they? And, 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 you, and no, you know the characters so well. Yeah. Then, you're, then you're trading in nothing but subtext. Yeah. yeah. And yep. it's, it, to quote Garth Marenghi, I know authors who use subtext and they're all cowards. <laughs> this is a, a really brave movie in that it constantly asks you to read the subtext into it because a lot of the scenes, the change scenes, have happened off stage. Yeah. The classic scene is the diner scene that everyone talks about, the thing that's clipped out. That's not only a great scene and a great comedy scene. It is paired with a scene earlier on where she accidentally says the word sex in a diner and is mortally embarrassed. Yes. Yes, I have. No, you have It just so happens that I have had plenty of good sex. 
And that says, okay, well, you've got two parallel scenes there. One at the beginning where she says sex, and it's the worst thing that's ever happened to her. The second one, she has the agency to start an embarrassing scene in a restaurant about sex and control it. To and say, have an orga, a pretend yeah. orgasm So she it. has changed. Oh, God. Oh, yes, 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 yes. At the beginning, he has all these set opinions about how the world is and can't change his mind. At the end, I watched it, I watched this three times. What changes his mind at the end? In a, in a cheap formula rom-com, someone would come up to him, something would happen. He, he doesn't. He walks around, mm -hmm. you see him think, and he changes his mind. Mm -hmm. And you go, well, then he's changed. You're watching all these characters change, but the changes are happening only if you've been paying attention. Probably at a subconscious level and you're watching it, you don't watch someone... Say someone from drowning, there's no lightning strikes, there's no air crashes, no, no high-concept Hollywood stuff happens. It's all happened off stage. All within their mind, yeah. exactly, as mm. you watch them. You know, you never see Carrie Fisher leave the married guy that she's yeah. you know, the best friend of <laughs> Sally, which I think is just an amazing observation, again, about women, you know, of a certain age. You always have a friend who's kind of, like, going, oh, God, is he ever going to leave? You know, there's always... <laughs> and, 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 and she, you know, and, and just the, the wonderful refrain of her go, you know, he's never going to leave. And she says, no, <laughs> nobody thinks he's ever going to leave. She goes, I know, I know, I know. He's never going to leave her. Of course he isn't. You're right, you're right. I know you're right. And it's just this refrain over and over again of Carrie Fisher sort of telling herself something she already knows and then not changing. Bruno Kirby says the same and, and mm. Carrie Fisher says the same. Then they change. Mm. And then you go, oh, my God, what does this... You're just watching the pleasure of watching people, people watching. It rem what I thought of in this, because it's made entirely of dialogue, it's made entirely of dialogue scenes of two-handers. And they'll do a split screen to make the two-hander more interesting. Mm. Or they'll bring in two other people and do a four-person split screen to try and make it more interesting. It's just conversations. And then I kept looking at those diners and thinking, you know when everyone's watching Meg Ryan have the orgasm? And Rob Reiner, weirdly, I thought there was more of Meg Ryan's face in that. A lot of it is off the other diners' reactions. Mm. This is a thing about cities and eavesdropping. You have eavesdropped on these couples... In your everyday life, you've sat in the diner and while well, pretending to read a book, you overheard someone. Why it's convincing is I spend all my time on buses listening to Harry and Sally talk. This sounds like you overhearing conversations, but they've put them together into an order that you can tell their story. It really suits a human need to sort of be nosy, <laughs> which mm. is a really nice structure. If you're so over Joe, why aren't you seeing anyone? I see people. See people. Have you slept with one person since you broke up with Joe? What the hell does that have to do with anything? That will prove I'm over Joe because I fuck somebody? Harry, you're gonna have to move back to New Jersey because you slept with everybody in New York and I don't see that turning Helen into a faint memory for you. So would you like to eavesdrop on this couple for 12 years? Yeah, I really would. Are you finished now? Yes. Can I say something? Yes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Can we talk about duos as well here? Because those, um, you're quite right about those two diner scenes, that this came up in the commentary. The second diner scene, the one with the orgasm, was put in there because Rob Reiner said, I think we need to pay off that observation that somewhere between 30 seconds and all night is where your problem is. I think we need to pay that off with another scene. Mm. So this scene in Katz's Deli was shot, but the fake orgasm was Meg Ryan's idea... And the I'll have what she's having was Billy Crystal's line. Yeah, that's so that, right. that that scene there was just dreamt up by the two actors. And does it isn't it spoken by Rob Reiner's mother? Yes, Rob Reiner's yeah. mother yeah. who's there, who said apparently she took the gig because she just wanted to spend the day with her son, which oh. I thought was a very uh, <laughs> mum thing to say. 
I'll have what she's having. The, the other nice Joe here, obviously, is Nora Ephron and Rob Reiner, because yes. this, the film was Rob Reiner's idea. He said, I've got an idea about two people who come out of... They both just come out of their first relationship and they decide that they need to be friends and not have sex because it will spoil the friendship. Then they have sex and it spoils the friendship. That was yeah. the whole idea he had for the story, which isn't really a story structure, is it? No. But then uh, Nora Ephron said, well, I'll write that. And then she did things like she took a lot of Billy Crystal's character from Rob Reiner. Mm. She said about him, this is from that fabulous commentary again, she says to Rob Reiner, you were depressed, but you were extremely fond of your depression. It was like a stuffed toy. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, and everyone yeah, knows that person. Everyone knows that stage where you're in. That's what Harry's like, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You ever think about death? Yes. Sure you do. A fleeting thought that drifts in and out of the transom of your mind. I spend hours, I spend days. And you think this makes you a better person? When a shit comes down, I'm going to be prepared, and you're not. That's all I'm saying. In the meantime, you're going to ruin your whole life waiting for it. I've forgotten their surnames, by the way, as well. Albright yeah. and Burns. Oh, Burns. Ooh. I've forgotten Burns. That's I forgot his job good. as well. At one point, I rewatched it last night, and at one point in the bookshop, she says he's a political consultant. Yeah, yeah. She's talking to oh, Carrie yeah. Fisher. Yeah. And you're like, oh, yes, of course he is. That makes sense. But I can totally see, but you don't see any don't of see that. It's never referenced. It's just when Harry met Sally. And you would never do that now. Yeah. And it's, it's thinking about that duo idea, you're absolutely right, because I would, I, would, I would give Rob Reiner some credit on the basis that I don't think it's just conversations as a film I think it's a dance I think it's constant dance if mm. you look at the timing of the way they move within scenes directorially is incredible the example I would just give of like then they leave the diner the first diner scene and they come out can a man say a woman is a tractor without it being a common and basically she goes all round right, the car right. he blocks Let's her she say, goes round the other way of the car argument. and goes all the way in to get to her door comma. and, and the movement as they are speaking I is back, I mean okay? choreographically I brilliant and the timing they arrive at exactly because the right point all the time, there. musically, oh, geez, to say the lines. Yeah. And that exists in every single scene. Just let it lie. In a way that I think is really unusual for quite word-heavy movies, which tend to sometimes be, in the, in the Linklater way, more one-shot, or in a Woody yeah, Allen yeah. way, more, more shaky cam, more handheld. What he's doing is he's framing every shot. Even the split screens don't feel necessarily to me like a way to make it interesting. They're watching a dance. They're watching a choreographed <laughs> movement, particularly when, for example, Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher get the phone calls after they've slept oh, together. Which is, I mean, it's so how conceived. How was that done? Yeah. I watched that last night going, how are you timing? <laughs> this is these are four things going on at different times. Yeah. I was expecting it to be like like a, a top secret style reveal where you'll turn out they're actually all in the same bed with different wallpaper behind. Yeah. Them. Like almost a Zucker Brothers gag. But it is brilliantly done. Because it's so good that you don't notice it. And another scene yeah. where I think that that choreography is exceptional is the travelator scene at the airport. Yes, the early yeah. one. When they sort of part ways, they can't part ways because they're still walking in the same <laughs> but they're, direction. They're being pulled along yeah. together. Yeah, and That's it's symbolic. The, but but <laughs> physically, the, you know, the, the physicality of the comedian there, Billy Crystal working with his body. Body, with Meg Ryan providing a sort of stability of a kind of um, very placed actress. Yes. And the way they work together physically is, I mean, uncomparable. And, and you don't even notice it because the words are so good. Yeah. And so I would argue, like, the pairing, the duo that you were talking about, being like Nora Ephron working with those words and Rob Reiner as a director, just conducting yeah, how they're yeah. moving to bring those words as beautifully to the surface as possible without ever drawing attention to himself, I think is a partnership of just 
beauty. And what moves me so much about it is, again, it's like this male-female, this best friendship that Rob Reiner and Nora Ephron obviously had in some way when they were making this and, you know, when they were talking about their marriages and love and stuff like that. Finding its way into Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan as people and those characters and the film in a way that is just really genuinely moving. So the love feels built on several levels and truthful on several levels. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a sense that if it had ended as originally intended, where they hadn't got together, which is the Annie Hall ending, which mm. is one of the reasons, one of the things that is nice about Annie Hall, that says, we had a nice time. Mm. That's quite a nice thing to just say. One of the reasons that it would work that way is that despite the top line, the way this is sold constantly, which is, can men and women ever really be friends without sex getting in the way? Which is just, that's, that's not what it's about. Because no. if, it, if it had ended with them not getting together, the answer would have been, of course they can, because look at Rob Reiner and Nora Ephron. Mm. They made this beautiful thing together. What I'm saying is, and this is not a come on in any way, shape or form, is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. That's not true. I have a number of men friends and there is no sex involved. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. You only think you do. You're saying I'm having sex with these men without my knowledge? No, what I'm saying is they all want to have sex with you. They do not. Do too. They do not. Do too. At the beginning, when the character of Harry says that, is when he's a prick. But weirdly, the film has become attached to that statement as if the film says it. I know. And the film doesn't say it. It's a very strange marketing thing that I can only assume is that way. And one of the reasons I didn't watch it for ages is because I thought, oh, what a, what, what a bland and sort of um, uh, easy conceit. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, you watch it, you go, oh, my God, it's not about that at all. It's... I think I think the things that make Annie Hall profound, which is that idea of you can love and then you can absolutely lose somebody and it's okay. You know, you can yeah. meet them on the street again and, and say, oh, she's a great girl, you know, and that's it. What I think when Harry Met Sally was originally supposed to be that because Rob Reiner had just got divorced and he was really interested in that perspective. Mm. And then during the making of the film, and this is just a story, so I don't know how true it is, but during the making of the film, he fell in love again with somebody else. That's true, he did, yes. And and and, and so he was able to imagine a truthful version of the end yep. that, that came to him because he was he suddenly remembered what it is, that, that it can happen, that it's possible. It's funny, but being in love is one of those things like being hot and being cold. You can't imagine yourself in the other state while you're in the opposite state. So right. it's very hard to direct a movie which ends romantically if you've just got divorced. It feels so cynical, doesn't yeah. it? And then the opposite probably feels the cynical cynical yeah. in that you're so right that's exactly right and what I think is actually surprisingly moving about When Harry Met Sally for me it's about something that never really gets said in movies which is life is long <laughs> yeah. you know it's not yeah. short I mean yeah. it, is, it is short that's an argument you can make but life is long and we're taught so much that like you'll know and it'll be easy and then this you know there's one person for everyone and they're the person who's lit well but what Harry Met Sally <laughs> teaches us is like no, you. Life is long. You'll fuck it up. You'll 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 hate each other. You'll be really close friends, and then you know, twelve years after you first met, you might end up together. That's how a lot of people's lives end up yeah. being much yeah. much messier and more emotionally complex and profound than the, the the formula of the romantic comedy. It's not normally depicted on screen because you've normally got ninety five minutes. Right. I think what's really clever about this film is the title. By saying it's just about when Harry met Sally, you get to cut out the faff. And you get the thing that is brilliant in Richard Linklater's trilogy, which is, I want to see these guys later. They didn't get together. Let's see them in a couple of years and see, how, see where they are. I had almost forgotten that was the structure of this film. I hadn't seen it for a while. So I watched it and went, oh, God, it opens with the funny hair. 
and we're going to drop in every five years and then four or five years and then we're going to get to the end and you get to see them change and to allow characters to change within a form that traditionally says as you said you'll know the idea that there's one person for you mm. and the worst thing that there's one person for you at a particular time mm. that you'll meet them in the right week whereas this is saying well you never know mm. if you keep bumping into each other eventually you might realize that's the person for you yeah or maybe you won't but take some weirdly take some of the drama take some of the stakes out and go you've got a while work this out be honest a very few romantic comedies or romantic films or films about love ever bother to say that. Yeah, in fact, it's antithetical to their structure, as you say. The idea that they're not going to get together, you know, because they just don't is really difficult and it's difficult to script that. But what Nora Ephron does brilliantly is she, she says, I'm not going to propel us with some false sense of jeopardy. Instead, I'm just going to tell you the truth over and over again. And there's so many moments <laughs> of truth-telling in this where you go, oh, I recognise what it was. There's a stage in your 20s and early 30s where I think you have very close friends of the opposite sex, or at least I did in my experience, where you you learn so much about men from them, you know, rather mm. than from the partners romantically mm. that you have, because you're talking to each other in a different way. And I think Billy Crystal's character says this at several points. He sort of says, I can just be myself with her because I don't want to sleep with her. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a very, very beautiful thing, I think, that I think sort of deep, deep friendship. And I think it captures it brilliantly. And there's, you know, I know everyone talks about them. There's lines like when they're walking through the park and they're talking about sexual fantasies and she says that thing about... Well, basically, it's the same one I've been having since I was 12. What happens? You know, it's, it's too embarrassing. Don't tell me. OK, there's this guy. What's he look like? I don't know. He's just kind of faceless. Faceless guy, OK. Then what? He rips off my clothes. Then what happens? That's it. But sometimes she goes, well, what happens next? She goes, oh, it's nothing, just that. Sometimes it's different, though. Well, sometimes I varied it a little. Which part? What I'm wearing. <laughs> you know, and you just go like, yeah, that is so perfect and astute and true about certain, like, men, women things without it being hack, without it being, you know, something like... It found cheap. all these new truths. I, I didn't realise that the phrase high maintenance and low maintenance are traced back to this film. Oh, really? This, apparently, that's where those phrases came from. It gave us all a language that we still use. One of the reviews of this, a quite savage review from the New York Times, said it was a sitcom version of Woody Allen. And mm. I think what's interesting is it does sit between Woody Allen and those 1970s relationship comedies he did and sitcom and where sitcom was going to go. And the language of this is the language of Friends and is the language of Seinfeld. It became the lifeblood of how we looked at our relationships through comedy for the next 20, 30 years. It does feel like the beginning of that, no matter how much it owes to Woody Allen, even down to the opening of Black... Yeah, White the opening titles. over jazz, uh, they were going to yeah. go. But I think it's less, weirdly, the way that Billy Crystal acts this is becomes the standard romantic lead. It's interesting they give her the same, well, the same quirks they give Courtney Cox in Friends. She's a bit fastidious. That appears to be quite an easy trope to give mm. give her and feel real. I think it was born very much from Nora Ephron's real ordering style when she would was meet she with like Rob Reiner, yeah. yes. which was, yeah, which, yeah, yeah I, th I think you could describe as fastidious, but as she says in the movie, it's also just, I just know what I, I know what I want. I know how yeah. I like things. And I think that that in itself is actually quite an interesting quality for a woman to be kind of like demanding. And again, and again a really interesting, you know, and, and agency certainty for, for the first half of the movie, Meg Ryan's character walks around being genuinely really together and yeah, fine yeah. and sort of saying like, I understand 
around what this relationship I've just come out of was. I'm glad actually it's over. It's a good thing it's over. It's not what you usually see, which is yeah. a slightly more broken or vulnerable. She doesn't need fixing. No, exactly. No, 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 no. And uh, weirdly, sort of neither does he, because he's quite confident to go through the world with his glass half empty thing. It's only when you dig down into them and as they start to crumble in the middle of the film do you go, oh, you did both need to change. Mm. At the beginning, the great thing is they're sharing that car. They don't need each other at the beginning. He's even got a girlfriend. They don't cheat on, on their partners or anything. There's, there's no sense of getting to this car with this woman who's going to answer all his problems or anything. They just run on rails. I think it's less about romantic love for me than actually... Romantic love seems to be built on this idea culturally that you're describing, which is this other person will solve me yes. or fix me or I will fix them and we'll slot together. And whereas actually friendship is built on a much more mature and kind of beautiful idea, which is I have the choice and I choose to spend time with this person. Mm. And I'm not, I, don't, I'm, I don't owe it to them. I'm not like genetically related to them. And so I'm like, like in debt in some way to them. I choose to spend time with this person. I'm not expecting some sort of psychological resolution or solve that will cure me. And I think that's... It's interesting to me that the movie starts on an image of Billy Crystal kissing another woman, his girlfriend at the time at college, and they're going, I love you, I love you to each other. Really, like, romantically <laughs> and sort of, like, straight into the spaces, like, traditionally romantic love. I love this year to stay. I love you. I love you. And then we never fucking see her again. He gets into the car. We don't give a shit about that. That means nothing. Yeah. That means nothing. And then the final line, or the or the final one, the final moment of between our two protagonists, is when they're talking about old Lang Syne. What does this song mean? My whole life, I don't know what this song means. I mean, should old acquaintance be forgot? Does that mean that we should forget old acquaintances? It doesn't mean that if we happen to forget them, we should remember them, which is not possible because we already forgot them. Well, maybe it just means that. We should remember that we forgot them or something. <laughs> anyway, it's about old friends. And yeah. I sort of think that's where the heart of the film is. And if you and all of those couples that sit on that sofa and talk to the camera about how they met and how they fell in love have really complicated backstories, and yeah. none of them fit with the romantic comedy idea or or, or even our traditional well, idea the, of romantic love. The yeah. first one does. The first one says, "I saw her and I knew." Oh yeah. And then that's they true. move from that to all the other ones. Like we had thirty-five years apart. There, it says it's more complicated than that. There's an interesting thing about friendship in this. Is very often there's been a lifeblood of of, of comedy relationship movies especially sort of in the last sort of 20 years, where the relationship, the romantic relationship, threatens two men mm. who are best friends. Uh, Shaun of the Dead is that. Mm. The, the idea that something happens, that bromance has been served really well, as has female relationships and things like Sex and the City and things. The idea of, of same-sex friendship is very, yes. very important. Yes. What's weird is this sits out there almost uniquely asking that question, can men and women be friends? And the answer at the end of it is, of course they can't, because they're going to fall in love, <laughs> just because of how the film ends. But the, this is... But almost... I think, yeah, I think it's the opposite of that, like in the <laughs> sense of, I think that I think that what it's trying to say in its ending, subtly, with her saying, I hate you, I hate you, and then yeah. the last line being about old Lang Syne, old friends, is that that's the important part of it for me. And I find that really moving. And you're so right. When I grew up, there were so few representations of men and women, like being together either on a in either in a writing way, 
like you only ever heard of men writing with other men, like comedy. Yeah. Um, or sometimes you'd, you'd hear about women writing on their own, being like, you know, Sheila Delaney and stuff in theatre or, or a Nora Ephron type or, yeah. um, you know, Dorothy Parker type, you know, people yeah. I admired. But the one person who I would look at and go, I want that is Elaine May and yeah. Mike Nichols. <laughs> yes. And yeah. the very, the, but the unusualness of that, the strangeness of the, the woman and the man working together as, as a sort of friends and professionally, it's something, and, and also, as you say, like in movies, just isn't really represented as a viable or interesting thing, <laughs> which I think is really, really wrong and the strange. Only other, the only other place it happened in mainstream comedy was uh, within a couple of weeks of this being made was Seinfeld with the Elaine with character Elaine, and Jerry. Who was forced on them, though, slightly really? in the early days because they were all men until the, the, the network said to Larry David, I believe, and this may be a myth, but I think I read it, said, you know, we really need one of them to be a woman because, yeah. like, we've got four people here. You know, we, we need one of them to be a woman. And then he thought that he did have a best friendship with Lauren someone or in his life yeah, that he yeah. based Elaine on. And and so and so Julie Louis-Dreyfus came on that. But it wasn't their initial thinking. And I just think that sometimes it's not about, like, let's represent women. I think sometimes it's it's about thinking, do we... The, it's, it's, it's extraordinary to me that there have been so few male-female double acts, mm. generally, com yeah. comically. Um, you know, I think now, the last one I saw was years ago, was when John Luke Roberts was doing work with Nadia Camille. Yeah. Yeah. But it's actually really unusual this and surprising. This country has ended up with that brother, course, that's brother country, sister. Yeah. But there's a different dynamic of your family, I suppose. Yeah, and it's brilliant. Yeah. You know, so I, you know, I just think it's something that... I, you know, I wish there'd been there more of. And there's something about when Harry met Sally, where I can sense the collaboration between Rob Reiner and Nora Ephron, and I can see the collaboration between Meg Ryan and Bill Christian. I find it very moving. Those, those bits where it drops in a thing that will break your heart. The courage it does that with, the brilliant, the, the karaoke machine scene, <laughs> which could be played a hundred different ways. On top, now you. Watch that fringe and see how it flutters. When I drive those high seven shutters, nosy folks will peek through the shutters and their eyes will pop. The wheels are yellow, the upholstery's brown, the dashboard's genuine leather. But when the ex-wife comes over with her new partner, and there could be a joke there, or Meg Ryan could win or best her, and they just let it sit there, mm. and you watch them in pain. Yeah. I and love you, that so this much. This is a comedy thing. They've just done a sing-song scene. They've just done the standard comedy, oh, she can't sing. She, you've forgotten how funny she is singing flat. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a great comedy scene. They've let it go and go, this needs to end with the authentic pain to say, again, there's something at stake here. How are you, Harry? Fine, I'm fine. This is Iris Stone, Harry Burns. Harry. If a relationship does go wrong, you will be in pain. But and when she cries, the, the, the break, crying breakdown scene, she's in real pain. These people and it's funny at yeah. the same yeah. time, yeah, yeah. which is so difficult to do. Well, the karaoke machine scene, that is like, they're all, they're having a really painful fucking conversation there. He's talking to his, his ex-wife and her new husband, Ira. <laughs> Meanwhile... The backing track from Sorry with the Fringe on top is still <laughs> bouncing away bye, in the bye, background. Bye, bye, bye. Well, see you. Yeah, bye. Nice to meet you, Ira. You okay? 
<laughs> and, and and the fact that as you say, Joel, like what's great is they don't they don't do the comedy thing, which would be quick pretend that we're together and so yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. that would be such an easy right. It'd be such an easy right to be like they pretend they're together and that foreshadows them actually getting together or something like that. No, they play it exactly how it would be, but with really funny lines. Yeah. So like at the end when he says, Does she look weird? Does she look weird? And and, and <laughs> Meg Ryan goes, I've never met her before. <laughs> I've nothing to compare this to. Yeah. You just think that's absolutely right and, and absolutely hilarious. And they're friends. They didn't have to pretend to be anything else. No. They can survive that really agonising scene without having to pretend to be boyfriend and girlfriend, yeah. without having to pretend to be... They don't have to do Romeo and Michelle, pretend they've invented post-its. They don't have to win <laughs> yeah. by one-upmanship. No, because they, they have each other yeah. as friends in that moment. And, and and it's subtly done, but when they, you know, there's so much about pairing and duos in that film, as you were describing, the dance of, you know, the you know whether it's Bruno and Billy Crystal or Carrie Fisher and Meg Ryan. The yeah. wonderful dinner where they end up cross-dating. Cross-dating. Yeah. Which you're yeah. waiting, that lovely... I mean, that's really clever, because... It's a cliche that the audience knows they're dating the wrong people. Mm. But the the weight of it and the gravity of it is so satisfying. Yeah. And and yeah, and you love that they end up they're the ones that end up together married in a very in quite a believable situation, yeah. Yeah. you know, that that doesn't feel it doesn't feel false somehow, but also the, the the pairing of the scenes, as you described, you've got the two diner scenes, you've also got the two Christmas tree scenes. Yeah, Again, yeah. really simplistic, the idea that, they, you know, they go and get a Christmas tree together and they can carry it because there's two of them. And then the second Christmas, you know, it's really difficult because there's only one of them. But again, that's not necessarily about romantic love. It's about just having a friend to go buy yeah. a Christmas tree with, which yeah, is very Seinfeld. Yeah. You'll say, are you married? We'll say no, man. It's not based on the classic writer's advice of someone has to really strongly want something, which is why often yeah. that's why often it's weighted one way or the other. You're sort of going like, I'm going to this guy wants to pursue this woman and you yeah. know, or or this woman wants, you know, wants to pursue this guy or wants to get this job or whatever. It's they are just people existing in the world in a very realistic way. And probably, like I was saying earlier, the only want they kind of have is to, they want to spend time with each other. Mm, and yeah. so you you witness them spending time together and you witness them changing and their lives uh, and becoming different people and the challenges and, you know, all of the, but very subtly in the background. Really, that's all they want. And then they end up falling in love. And so it, it, I imagine it would be a very challenging thing to deliberately try and write that because you haven't got the tools that you're always told you need the protagonist with the want and the obstacle you've actually more got a kind of mood you want to create maybe and some things you want to say which are (laughs) very like the real challenge you're not supposed to write from that place you know well Well, that's why why it suits a jazz score so well doesn't it you know because it's just very loose and kind of it's the film is just as you said earlier on it's just conversational really it's just lots of conversation it reminded me of something which we've mentioned before on this podcast I'm going to work out eventually where it's from you may know I think it's from a theatre thing I was told this by Andrew Mayle the film critic who told me once that there are two ways of writing a story one's horizontally and one's vertically and the horizontal story is someone wants something there are obstacles in the way or the classic hero's quest thing and one is vertically which is in scene one there's, there's two people and you like them and in scene two they do something that makes you like them more and in scene three they do some more things that make you like them more and that's Butch and Sundance and With Nail and I and a lot of good romance you, the, the thing that's at stake is please don't stop these people being in the scene together because <laughs> yeah. I'm loving watching them. And that's done a lot in in buddy comedies and in mismatched buddy comedies and in buddy adventure movies. 
a lot of those cop buddy movies, you're not really, you don't care about the drug deal that's going on. You just want to keep Turner and Hooch in the same frame together. That's a really interesting point because that's, I've been thinking a lot about, I'm writing two television shows at the moment and with streaming services particularly, they make you think a lot about how you end something because the whole model is based on hoping that people keep watching. Mm. And I think what's quite, interesting about that is they say that there's two ways you can do it. One is people go, I want to know what happens next, which speaks to that horizontal model that you're talking about. But the other thing is they say, I just want to spend more time with these people, which is more like that second model. And you kind of, you know, you you, you sort of get pushed towards one or the other in order Mm. to try and keep people tuned. But they're quite different approaches. All of streaming is to do with making people addicted to something. And there's a a thing where there are two ways of, they're all based on, the fact they used to get money out of people for sport. And the two ways you watch sport is I want to get to the cup final and find out who wins, or I will watch Leeds United do anything. And <laughs> they're both that model. And with a sitcom, the number of sitcoms and, and comedy things I watch on streaming that I can't stop watching just because I don't want to stop watching those guys in the office in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend having a nice time together. Mm. I don't care whether she gets the guy. I want to just watch those guys hang out. Cheers. I want to watch the people in Cheers <laughs> in that bar. They're not going anywhere. I don't care if Sam gets Diane really. That You can use that as a cliffhanger to get me into this next series. But I really... The sitcom model you were talking about earlier on is about saying, I want to watch those guys do anything. And succession mm. is that. I will watch these awful people hang out together because <laughs> I love watching them hang out together. Well, when I, you know, when I first fell in love with this film, um, which was around the time, though I didn't realise it at the time, was the first time I fell in love... Um, I just wanted more and more of it. I thought, I've got to get more When Harry Met Sally. This isn't enough, these 90-something <laughs> minutes. It's not enough. And in the back of Empire magazine, there was a little advert that ran for a company called Hollywood Scripts. And you could send off to them and you, you could send them a cheque or a postal order or something else old-fashioned and they would send you a photocopy of the shooting script. So I thought, right, I want to see what, what fell out of this film. There's more When Harry Met Sally in here and I can get it. So I bought it and this thing arrived and I devoured it. And the answer is there's about three lines. Really? The rest of it was all there on the page. Mm. And the only thing, the only there's only one decent outtake from it as well, which is when Sally goes on a date with a guy who's got a collection of air <laughs> <laughs> in jars. Yeah, I should mention the photography as well because the thing that Barry Sonnenfeld, the the, the, the DP on this, said, I basically just decided I'm going to do this so simply that nothing is going to get in the way of these two people. So everything is incredibly simply shot, and even when the stunt thing of the four-way split on the screen. It's mm. just very straightforward. It's just four people in mid-shot looking in the same yeah. direction. I think so there's, that, oh, yeah. nothing, there's nothing fancy in here. There's no fancy camera work at all. I think that might be one of the things I like about it. It is quite a writer's film in that yeah. way. Yeah. Because even though, as I was saying, I really praise Rob Reiner's direction for its just its fluidity and its dance-likeness, yeah. I... I think that the, I think that the platform it gives to the writing is really generous, and I think when you're a writer, there's something really lovely about seeing that. Like for me, someone like Nora Ephron, when I when I watched this movie in my in my sort of late twenties, when I was trying to consolidate myself as a writer, there aren't there aren't like a million people out there to look to. There are certain kinds of women writers that get sort of pushed, you know, sort of Sylvia Plath type, where you're mm. very sort of, you know, kind of sad and damaged and complex and dark, you know, or, or 
or quite often something more frivolous at the other end, sort of Barbara Cartland cliche thing. <laughs> but the thing about someone like Nora Ephron, she was a journalist first. She was a very yeah. serious sort of reporter. And her first movie that she wrote, Silkwood, which I don't know yeah. if you've seen, I mean, it takes very, very seriously its, its subject matter yeah. of... of um, you know, the, uh, of workers' rights. It, I'm not saying it's not dry, but it's very, it's very sort of firm and journalistic in its take. Yeah. And that, and I come from a background slightly that's interested in contemporary events, journalism, stuff like that. And then that mixes quite a lot with my work. I've written a lot about corporate fraud and yeah. Russian assassination, things that have actually happened and then tried to theatricalise and dramatise them. And knowing about a writer like Nora Ephron, where she has both that in her bag and, you know, a deceptively simple, perfect, charming, genuine love story about a male-female friendship, male-female friendship that becomes something more. It's just very inspiring. And it made me sort of go, oh, yeah, you can. You don't have to be restricted just to drama. You can try a bit of comedy or you can, you, you, you can, you know, look at different things and work in a different way. And she was someone who was pioneering that. And that is a really inspiring thing. Sometimes all you need is absolute excellence. Yes, yeah. it is, yeah. <laughs> all it takes. Yeah, Can easy. more people just be excellent? But I, that is a really amazing thing to hear, that, that this as a piece of work can inspire you by saying loads is possible, and yet when you watch it, it appears to be pared down, simple. There's no wasted lines, as you said, from the screenplay. It's, it's clear. It's not got... What's it about? Just about these two people. That's an incredible thing to achieve, and then to get... The longevity of this is a film that's now 30 years old and people are still watching and people are still holding up as the finest example of what it did, even though Hollywood would bite your arm off if you could give them another one. Yeah. And the only reason it's still being talked about is it's absolutely fucking brilliant. <laughs> Thank you very much for bringing one Harry Met Sally, Lucy. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Lucy. 